Thank you, Nancy. Well, if we were select last week, we are even more select this week, but that's okay. It's not numbers that count, is it? It's that the our hearts are in the right place. Um, if you want to go through at the, um, when we get to the dividing point, if you want to go through to the room and be creative, we do have the relay, which is hopefully working a bit better this week, so you'll be able to hear and do if you prefer to stay in here when we get to that point. And if everybody stays in here, that's fine too. So just do what you want to do. Don't try and um, make me feel better about things. It'll be fine. Our course of worship this morning is one of Eric Liddell's favourite uh, readings, and all our hymns are ones that were particularly meaningful for him. So our call to worship is Isaiah 41 and verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. So we sing our opening hymn of praise, God who touches earth with beauty. to God in prayer. We thank you, God, because you give us more than we would ever dream of asking. Daily bread and shared meals that become feasts. The breath of life and voices to celebrate. The understanding of our history (coughs) and the hope of our future work we can do, and time to be recreated. People to love and trust, 
people who love and trust us. Gifts and responsibilities. We thank you, God, because you ask of us more than we dream of giving. Skills we have never developed. Care for a world whose problems we cannot solve. Listening which hurts us. (coughs) Giving which leaves us empty-handed. Love which makes us vulnerable. Faith which seems impossible. But you do not ask us to be supermen and women. You challenge us to be human. Give us the courage to be human because you yourself became human and lived our life knowing our imperfections, sharing our joy and pain, making us your people so that we can say together, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. going to have another picture quiz this morning because I know you love them so much. (laughs) I'm going to show you some photos of Christians in sport and I want to see if you know who they are and anything about what they did or or do do and I will tell you what the sports are as we go along. The first sport is cricket. So three Christians who are involved in cricket. One's Dickie Bird, yeah, who's an umpire. Shepherd. Uh, yep, there's uh, David Shepherd, who was an England cricketer. No idea if it's WD Grace. No, it's not. Okay, so the first one is on the left at the top is Charles Studd. He was an England cricketer, and he was a missionary to China, India, and the Congo. Um, I believe he worked with Hudson Taylor. And if you remember, Hudson Taylor was the one to whom the appeal that um, Mary Jones gave some money for Bibles a way back. David Shepherd, what do we know about David Shepherd apart from he was an England cricketer? Yeah, he was an Anglican priest, Bishop of Liverpool, and he worked tirely with Archbishop Derek Warlock to address their sectarian issues in Liverpool at the time. They were sometimes referred to as fishing ships because they were all together and never out of the newspapers. And Dickie Bird, as you rightly say, is a cricket umpire. Um, He is involved in sports chaplaincy to an amateur football team near to where he lives, even in retirement. So he he does women's football, uh, sorry, women's, yeah, it is football, yeah, women's football, children's football, that sort of thing. Okay, football, we have two footballers. Anybody know who they are? Both Northern Ireland internationals. One on the left played for Motherwell. Okay, 
Um, the one on the left is Stuart Elliott, who played for Motherwell and Hull and somewhere in Northern Ireland I've forgotten the name of, who now pastors a non-denominational church in Hull, a non-evangelical church. And the one on the right is Philip Mulrine, who played for Manchester United and Northern Ireland, and he is now a Dominican Roman Catholic priest, and in fact was ordained priest just over a week ago. So two footballers, and I, I like the fact they, they're different um, size ones, Protestant ones, are Catholic, and both Northern Ireland players. Paralympics. Anybody know who any of the, either of these are? Okay. Um, the one at the top right is Anna Sharkey, who is a visually impaired goalball player. Uh, she's an active Christian, but she works as a ther- physiotherapist. Um, so she, she has a, a job in the health line. And the one on the left is Anna w- Waffler Strike, um, who was born in Kenya but is a UK citizen and she's a sports advocate and an author. And moving on to swimming. Oh dear. And we even had one of them every week for four weeks um, when it was the Commonwealth Games three years ago. We had a, her video every week for four weeks. Okay, the one on the top left is Kirsty Balfour, who's a Scottish swimmer and medalist. She's now a wife and mother, and she works in a cafe for a Christian charity in Perth called People with a Mission Ministries. And the one on the right bottom is a, Rom- a Roman Catholic. North American who works in various charities supporting homeless people and vulnerable people. Do we know who either of these are? Do you know what the sport is? <laughs> okay, these are both rowers. Uh, Richard Chambers is um, an, a current, still an Olympic rower and he now works as a coach, sports coach in Cambridge. And Debbie Flood, who we also had every week for four weeks when we were doing the Commonwealth Games, um, she's, she now works for Christians in sport. Maybe you'll know the last few. Especially as two of them have got their names on the front. <laughs> yeah, I heard one down there from Paul. Okay, so top right is Christine Ohurugu, who is a runner who, um, she was, if you know her story you'll know she was suspended for missing doping tests um, was then reinstated and continues to perform at a high level and she says her faith sustained her through those hard times Chris Akabusi uh, was a hurdler and he's now a motivational speaker but surely please you know the one on the left <laughs> thank you <laughs> um, what do you know about him in sport he well, he wouldn't run on a Sunday, that's true. Um, he was actually an international rugby player, a good cricketer, and an athlete, and ultimately a missionary to China. So basically, I've just shared those people very, to show that there are people in all sorts of different sports who are Christians. There are some of them who act, go on to work actively in ostensibly Christian work. There are others that work in other fields and act as salt and light. They take their faith with them into the motivational speeches, into the physiotherapy clinics, whatever it is. They, they take their faith with them. That's part of who they are. 
So we're going to sing again, and we're going to sing There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. I think, no, we're not. We're going to sing Dare to be a Daniel. I beg your pardon. Thank you, Wendy. I'm glad you're on, I'm glad, no, you're, I'm glad you're on, on the case, because I'm clearly not. Um, Dare to be a Daniel. This was one that, that Eric Little used to teach to the children when he was in the internment camp in China. So thank you, Wendy. I completely messed that one up. So Dare to be a Daniel. Sorry, Leo. a little bit more about Eric Little. He was born in 1902. His parents, James and Mary, were congregationalists who were also missionaries in China. And he was one of four children. He had an older brother called Robert, a sister, Janet, who was always known as Jenny, and a baby brother, Ernest. The two older boys were sent to a boarding school in Eltham, East London, which to this day places a very strong emphasis on sport. And here in this photograph, they are both, I'm not sure which ones they are, they are both part of the first 11 cricket team. So really good cricketers. And here is Eric in the rugby team, because he was a very, very good rugby player. They weren't exactly happy days for the boys, being sent away from the place, the only place they knew, which was China, to go to a boarding school away from their parents, away from everything they knew, and actually speaking a language which wasn't their first language, really. And even up until the end of the 20th century, this would be the experience of children of missionaries. They would be sent home to the UK to go to boarding schools because it was felt that the quality of education there was at least more predictable than it would have been had they stayed with their parents overseas. The grown-up Eric loved football, and he played for Scotland. He actually played an international match in Paris in the same stadium where he would later run 
in the Olympics. Of course, Eric is most famous for winning the gold medal in the 400-metre race at Paris in 1924. His preferred distance was the 100 metres, but because he discovered that that was going to be run on a Sunday, he switched to the 400. And there's a whole lot of mythology that's grown up around that decision. Eric was a fine-looking young man. He was very popular, and he attracted the interest of many a young woman, including one Eileen Soper, a very devout woman who I think would have rather liked to have become Mrs. Little. But it never happened. She did, however, manage to persuade Eric to sit for this portrait, which now hangs in the National Gallery of Scotland. He looks quite serious, but he also has a sense of warmth about him, I think. Eric Little gained a BSc from Edinburgh University, then he headed off to China as a missionary teacher, joining his parents and his older brother Rob, who was by then a missionary doctor. In 1934, aged 32, and following a three-year engagement to allow her to train as a nurse, he married a Canadian, Florence Mackenzie, who was ten years younger than him. I think that caused a few heads to turn, that he was quite so much older than his bride. The couple had three daughters, although Eric would only ever meet the first two. The eldest, Patricia, was born in 1935, with her sister Heather arriving at the start of 1937. There is apparently a rather entertaining story about how Heather came by her name. She was due to be born in December, but was born in January. Her mother fancied the idea of the name Carol to reflect the fact that she'd been due around Christmas, whilst her father favoured Heather in favour of his homeland in Scotland. So they agreed to put the names into a hat, and whichever one Florence pulled out would be chosen. So the papers were written, folded up, put in the hat. She pulled one out, opened it, and it said, Heather. So she went with that. And then Eric admitted that he'd written Heather on both pieces of paper. <laughs> Maureen, the baby of the family, was born in Canada, where um, Florence and the children had gone for safety when it became too dangerous to stay in China. It's really easy, I think, to think of missionaries as really holy people, a bit staid, but there were a few photos um, around that just show a different side to them, that they were, they were a happy couple who shared a lot of laughter. Here they are on holiday. Here they are at a friend's wedding. Um, he was best man, she was bridesmaid, and after the, cer the ceremony, he put her hat on and posed for a photograph. And here they are just larking about. It's a lovely, happy photo. Could be any young couple just enjoying some fun together. He's tickling her, and she's got a feigning that she doesn't like being tickled. In 1943, Eric Liddle, along with hundreds of others, was interned by the Japanese in, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, but something like Waisheim, where he taught science and did whatever he could to help other people. He seems to have been a workaholic. He was constantly busy. He was always cheerful and devout in his faith. He also got involved in an underground trade with native Chinese people smuggling food into the camp in exchange for gold and other possessions. 
He still loved sport and he spent a lot of time with the children in the camp, teaching them games and participating in races, which he would win despite giving them a good head start. And this is where we find our hill-head connection, of course, because our own Bruce Keeble was one of the children in that same camp. I've no idea if Bruce is in that photograph or not. Um, I'm told he considered Eric Little to be a very old man, but he was only a small boy, and, and actually I think Eric perhaps aged quite quickly. He stuck fast to his never-on-a-Sunday beliefs and he would lock up all the sports equipment on a Saturday night. One Saturday night, or it's Sunday morning, the youngsters broke into the store, took out the hockey equipment and started a game. Eric was not exactly pleased. But after some careful thought, he agreed that they could play sport on Sunday, but only in the afternoon and only if they were at worship first which is interesting because this was something that was offered to him um, when, with the 100 metres, but he chose not to do it. By 1945, Eric's health began to fail. He'd lost an awful lot of weight, and he began for the first time in his life to become quite irritable, and he slid into quite a deep depression. When he was persuaded to go and see a doctor, he was diagnosed with exhaustion and told to rest, and of course, he didn't. He was not that sort of a person. And actually, in very quick succession, he had three strokes, the last of which was catastrophic, and he died just a few weeks before the camp was liberated. A post-mortem examination showed that he had, in fact, died of a brain tumour. And he was buried, as were around 30 other people who had died during that time, in a small cemetery. What's really sad is that cemetery was forgotten about, was lost and is now hidden under buildings. When news of his death reached our shores, it is said that the whole of Scotland mourned and Eric Liddell became a national hero. And this was one of the hymns that sustained him. There's a wideness in God's mercy.
said, let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavours of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colours in the world. God's not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm going to put you on a light stand. And now I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. Be opening up to others. You'll prompt people to open up to God. This generous God. This generous Father in heaven. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives the best. The sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless The good and bad, the nice and nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is this. Grow up. Your kingdom subjects... Live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others, the way God lives towards you. So now we have opportunity to respond in different ways to the things we're thinking about. And so there is um, a relay through to the other room so you can listen and colour or make as we do so. If anyone wants to know, we have some Chinese paper cuts on some medals as the options for makes today. Thanks, Paul. I'm going to start 
our thinking by showing you two video clips of the same race. I'd like you to watch carefully and to see what you can spot that's the same and what's different, apart from the fact that one's colour and one's black and white. It says in the old book, he that honours me, I will honour. Good luck, Jackson Schultz. So where does the power come from to see the race to its end from within? God made me for a purpose. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Chariots of Fire is a great film and it's been used as the basis for all sorts of Christian studies over the years. It's also a work of fiction. In the clip we saw, the stands are full of people cheering. In the newsreel, the majority of the stands are empty. In the clip, the note is handed to Eric just before the race. Actually, he had received that note anonymously before he came to the stadium. In the clip, we see a piper and drummer in full ceremonial dress. They don't appear in the newsreel because they weren't there. They were actually outside the stadium. And accounts from the time speak of a skirl of the pipes being heard just before the race. And although it's not included in that clip, the film has Eric discover only on his way to Paris, just as he gets on the ferry to go to France, that the 100 metres will be run on a Sunday. But actually he knew several months beforehand and made the choice to switch to the 400 metres. It just doesn't make quite such a good tale, does it? And yet, despite those inaccuracies, the film carries a sense of truth. 
we are very much drawn to this young man who stood up for his beliefs and who, in the ideal, perfect underdog story, went on to win his race. We're inspired and encouraged by it. We're challenged by it. Maybe we're even changed by it. Such is the strength and power of this film. Whatever the medium, whether it's film, radio, news, history, biography, memoir, truth, or the lack of truth, is not just about verifiable facts. The choice of words, the images, and where it's used, the music, all impacts on the recipient and are included for a reason. Filmmaking is a very expensive business. And the inclusion of the notes being read by Lidl, the inclusion of the piper and the drummer, and the voiceover of Eric's imagined thoughts are all part of what that filmmaker wants to tell us. And as well as within things that we would term as secular, it's true with the sacred, isn't it? When I was researching the emergence of the Bible for last week's service, one of the things that really struck me was that right back in the 300s, when people were deciding which books to put in and which not to put in, they already realised that they had Gospels that differed and they couldn't all be the correct chronological order. But they also recognised something more important, that each of these Gospels carried truth. They couldn't all be historically accurate and there were things that nobody apparently witnessed and, and things that Jesus said when he was in private. But that didn't matter because there was a greater truth that was revealed through all of them. Truth is greater than facts. Truth can be found and often is found in fiction and in story and in film. And as the old hymn writer expressed it, the Lord has yet more light and truth to break forth from his word. Eric's family were Congregationalists, and like Baptists, Congregationalists emerged at the time of the Reformation. And so there's a lot of common roots, and more than a few shared heroes. Um, both of them, for example, will claim John Bunyan. Congregational autonomy, local discernment of the mind of Christ, and avoidance of formal creeds would all have been part of Liddell's experience. The London Missionary Society, with which he went out, was interdenominational, but attracted a lot of Congregationalists. So he would have served with devout women and men, perhaps from the Church of England <coughs> or other of faiths that, that actually other traditions, sorry, that did use the historic creeds of the church. They thought they were really important. From what I can understand, he was a very tolerant man. He affirmed people with whom he clearly disagreed and he enjoyed learning with and from others. As part of my research for today, I discovered he wrote a little book that was published about 40 years after his death. It only existed in, a, in either a handwritten or a typed format, an original manuscript. The title's pretty dull. 
disciplines of the Christian life. But it's an absolute treasure. It really is. I just kind of fell in love with this book as I read it. It's partly didactic. It has an introduction to the New Testament. It's partly catechism because it covers key doctrines. And it's partly devotional with a one-year New Testament reading reading scheme. And it's intriguing because the messages it conveys are as relevant now in 2017 as they were in the 1940s. What really fascinates it to me is that he seems to have condensed his theology into what he called my creed. Just five statements in a traditional form of a creed, but so different from the ancient creeds of the church. I think it's worth having a look at it. So I'm going to put it up on the screen, clause by clause. I believe in God the Father, almighty, creator, infinitely holy and loving, who has a plan for the world, a plan for my life, and some daily work for me to do. Right at the beginning, it's practical. God has something for him to do. I believe in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, as example, Lord and Saviour. Interesting that example comes before Lord and Saviour in his listing. Jesus is our example as well as our Lord and Saviour. He is fully man and fully God, is what the traditional lines would have said. But he puts it in a very practical way. I believe in the Holy Spirit who is able to guide my life so that I may know God's will and I'm prepared to allow him to guide and control my life. I'll let him off the dodgy exegesis that makes the spirit masculine rather than feminine. He was of his time after all. But again, hugely practical. Belief has to lead to action. I'm prepared to allow God to guide and direct my life. I believe in God's law that I should love the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind and with all my strength and my neighbour as myself. Jesus himself (laughs) said the whole law can be condensed into this. And this was what Eric Little believed too. I believe it's God's will that the whole world should be without any barriers of race, colour, class or anything else that breaks the spirit of fellowship. That one for me is mind-blowing. That is the radical inclusion to which we still aspire and towards which we still work. Race, colour, class or anything else that breaks the spirit of fellowship should be done away with. And that's nearly 100 years ago. Was he speaking prophetically? Well, for me, he certainly was. According to the biography I read this week, 
Among his surviving papers was a postcard of this painting. It's a bit Victorian twee, I think, for my liking, but he really liked it, and he was Victorian, to be fair. Karl Bloch, or Bloch, or how you say it, was a 19th-century Danish artist who was commissioned to paint a series of paintings of the life of Christ, and this one was called The Sermon on the Mount. It does repay study, actually, although I said it's a bit twee. If you actually look at the characters, you can see different emotions, different aspects of, of human life and different conditions of people, and it does kind of fit with Eric Liddell's theology on life. If he did use it as a bookmark, it's certainly very fitting because as his life, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6 and 7, was very precious to him. With the Beatitudes being considered as one of those passages he thought we all ought to know off by heart, along with the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm. But the, the Sermon on the Mount was so important for him that further on in his little devotional book, he says that perhaps an extra clause should be added to the creed that he had. I believe in the Sermon on the Mount and its way of life. And I intend God helping me to embody it in my life. Continuing to reflect on these passages of scripture whilst in the internment camp was a challenge, especially the instruction to love one's enemies and to pray for one's persecutors. Realising that this meant praying for, not about, the Japanese guards, that it meant seeing them as fellow human beings, praying for their families, praying for their concerns, he committed to do so daily, and he did that until he died. Recognising common humanity, shared hopes and fears, and maybe even powerlessness amongst those men, transformed his already positive attitude towards them. Knowing the truths of the gospel is good. Believing them is better. But in the end, it's living them out that really matters. What Eric Niddle learned and lived out over his short life may we aspire to in our own continuing lives. Gracious Spirit, dwell with me. I myself would gracious be.
I had an idea this week, and then I discovered it wasn't going to be very easy to make it work. I was going to do something based around prayer wheels, which are used in uh, Chinese type cultures to do prayers. And basically, prayers are scribed onto scrolls, which are sealed into circular things, which can be whirled round as an aid to prayer. So we're going to do prayer boxes, which are not quite the same thing, but hey-ho. What you should have is a piece of blue paper cut into five rectangles, divided into five rectangles, and this which will be a box when we make it. We're going to start with the blue piece of paper, and we're going to create the prayers to go inside our box. And I'm just going to say five different topics and you can choose which box to use for each one there's no correct order and in that to either write or draw or symbolize your prayer so first of all one place in the world for which we would like to pray And then one person who I admire. One matter that's important in our own land, which you can interpret as Scotland or the United Kingdom, whichever feels more natural. Or if this is not your first land, then even your your own homeland is fine. One person that I care about very much. And then lastly, one thing we would like to ask God to help us with. And then when you've done that, I just invite you to roll it up or fold it up or a bit of both and then comes the the challenging bit so we should all have one of these little gift boxes to make they are nicely scored so it should work start by have it that way up and just bend it round into a square And you should be able to put a little tag into the slot and and have something that looks like that. And please help each other if if somebody's struggling. So you should be able to make that into basically a square with two open ends. Some people will be really clever and they'll just go on and make it, that's fine. When you've got that, if you turn it so that you've got the curvy bits at the bottom... And you've got a rectangle with a lug cut out. If you push that one down, and then the two side ones so that they tuck into it, and then finally the one with the sticky out bit, so it looks something like that. And you should have a box with a bottom in it. Ah, all these amazingly clever people. Am I right managing? Yeah. 
come to church and do lots of creative, complicated making. When you've done that, the real challenge, and it should fit, is to put your scroll inside. It should fit in diagonally. Then fold down the two shorter tags and cross the two circular ones over. Put the slots together and you should end up with a box with a heart on it on the top. If that's worked. Is anybody needing a hand or are we all okay? Okay, Okay, I think we're probably about there. If you'd like to hold your prayer box in your hands, and I'm just going to use a very short prayer that comes from Japan. It's a prayer that encourages us to move beyond thinking and praying to acting. I read in a book that a man called Christ went about doing good. It is disconcerting to me that I am so easily satisfied with going about. God of Christ, accept our prayers and help us to live there out working. Amen. Please do take your boxes home and use them to continue to pray. we enjoy have their origin in you. Please accept these our gifts and accept our lives, all to be employed in your service. Amen. Our closing hymn is particularly beautiful. Um, It's one that I love very much. It's not an easy one to sing, but it's one that was really important to Eric Little and I believe was sung a lot towards the end of his life. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on my side.
May faith in God uphold us. May the hope of God overarch us. May the love of God surround us. Light of the world, through tears of sorrow, tears of joy, shared tears, we see refracted the many colours of your creation, the mingled colours of your promise, the light of the world that cannot be put out now or ever. <laughs>